Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. We're going to read from 19 to 23 this morning. Verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you, who were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Amen. Father, I pray that you would take these wonderful words, that you'd quicken them in our hearts this morning, that you'd fill us all with your Holy Spirit, that we would have wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, and we'd be able to see you, Father, clearly today and rejoice in you and your goodness toward us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So here's a question to begin. We're talking about pleasure here. What brings you pleasure? Or what pleases you? When you think of anything, just take a moment. You don't have to answer it. It might be uh, destructive to your reputation. But uh, <laughs> what brings you pleasure? Is it a certain relationship that you have that brings you pleasure? Or a certain activity that you like to do that brings you pleasure? Or is it some music that brings you pleasure? Or some food? Or games? Right? Could be a many, many number of things, right? And it could be more abstract than just like food or music. It could take pleasure in, in righteousness. It could take pleasure in justice. When you read in the newspaper about uh, someone who's done some horrible thing um, and then he's on the run or escaped and then finally a couple months later you found that they, they found that guy and he's in prison. You go, oh, you take some pleasure in that. You got to be careful with that thing because before God we're all guilty, right? Then there's some people that take pleasure in unrighteousness. They actually take pleasure in doing sinful things. I think that would include most of us. Webster defines pleasure as the gratification of the senses or of the mind. He also defines it as a preference or the dictates of your will. So you do what pleases you because you prefer that thing. So when I was still living at home, when I was younger, sometimes my mom and my dad would go out for an evening and they'd say, Eli, uh, we're going out for the evening. You can eat whatever you please. Yeah, that's in the, in the fridge. Eat whatever you please. So then I would get to choose whatever I want to eat and I would enjoy it and I would have pleasure in that. Right? So here in our text, we have pleasure. We're talking about pleasure, and the idea of pleasure pervades this whole text that we read. And I want you to see that as we read it. It's talking about someone's pleasure. Whose? Peter's? God's. The Father's pleasure is talking about him. And God, like us, or rather, we, like God, because we're made in his image, he's not made in our image. God is a God of pleasure. That's why we are people of pleasure as well. God is a God, and you see this in the Bible, all throughout the Bible. God takes pleasure in things. 
He also takes displeasure in things, right? God takes pleasure in the, in the works of his own hands. The Bible tells us that he rejoices in the works of his own hands. When God created the heavens and the earth, God looked at it and saw that it was good. He took pleasure in that which he had created. The Bible says that God, he loves righteousness and he hates iniquity. So he takes pleasure in that which is right, and he takes displeasure in that which is not right. So God is not this kind of um, deistic, neutral God who has no emotions. Sometimes we can feel like that, right? We're the ones just swimming in emotions, and God seems to be just so unmoved, so completely steady, right? But God is a God who also has emotions. He gets grieved, and he has joy. It says he rejoices over us with singing. That's an amazing verse in, Ze in Zephaniah. That's an amazing verse. That's a verse that I don't think we think about too much, but can you imagine that God sings over us with joy? That's kind of interesting, isn't it? That's amazing. But here, now God takes pleasure in many things, but I'm going to suggest that here is described that specific pleasure in which God takes the most joy in. So if we want to know God, we want to know what pleases him, right? If I want to know Alan, then I want to know what pleases Alan. If I want to know God, then I want to know what pleases him. And here we have what pleases God. Of all things that God is pleased with, let me suggest that it is his son, Jesus Christ. Many, many times in the Bible, in the Old Testament as well, some people might not know this, but in the New especially, God says to us, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And he says that many times throughout Jesus' life, doesn't he? At his baptism, at the transfiguration, when God speaks out of heaven right before um, Jesus is about to be betrayed and crucified. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And God is pleased with his son and with what his son does. Just like a father isn't just pleased with his son in and of himself, but when his son does something, his father is also pleased with that as well. So his father, or the father, is pleased in Jesus and what Jesus does, also by Jesus. Now here's my question. Do you take pleasure in Jesus Christ? Is when, when, we, when, you ask, when you answer that question that I asked earlier, do you take pleasure? What brings you pleasure? You could answer many things, just like God could. But is Jesus the sweetest of all for you in your pleasure? Just think about that. I know food is enjoyable, but do you find enjoyment in Jesus even more than food? When you think about Jesus, when your mind, one of the, have you ever had one of those days where it's just different than other days when you just taste the sweetness of Jesus Christ and what God has done for us in Jesus? And it's just like, this is so much better than anything else that I've ever had and ever experienced. Does Jesus Christ and the thought of him please you? Because we ought to be pleased with what God is pleased with. And here's why, a reason why we should be pleased. We're going to look at this today. Because in Jesus, everything that we need is fully met in him. Are you pleased with that? Are you glad that God has provided Jesus for you and met everything that you need? He's sufficient for all your needs. We're going to look at three of those sufficiencies today in this text. And as we see that, 
wow, Jesus is sufficient for me in these areas, it should give us pleasure, just as God is pleased with him. So look at verse 19. It says, It pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, should all fullness dwell. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Commentators agree that this verse gathers into a grand climax the previous statements. So do you remember last week we looked at verse 15 through 18 and we talked how Jesus is the invisible, the image of the invisible God. He is the revelation of the Father, right? Jesus is the revelation of the Father. Secondly, he's the source and the sustainer and the purpose of all creation, right? Everything exists and you exist for Jesus Christ and the revelation of that, of the Father in him. And he's also the head of the church, the new creation. And here's what verse 19 says. That pleases the Father. It pleases the Father that Jesus is the revelation of the Father. It pleases the Father that Jesus is the purpose of all creation. It pleases the Father that everything exists for the revelation of him. It pleases the Father that Jesus is the head of a church, the church that knows who the Father is, where Jesus can say, you know me and you know my Father. That pleases God. It pleases God to make himself known. See, Christianity isn't a philosophy where men sat down and they're like, well, we know that there's a God, but how can we kind of figure out who this God is? Because he's hiding, and we are going to think about this deeply, and we're going to figure this one out. And after many thousands of years, somebody finally figured it out and said, ah, God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy and grace. That's not what Christianity is. It's not like God, and then when God finds out that they found out, he says, oh, no, I was trying to keep that one under the wrap. You know, I was trying to keep that one hidden. That's not the way it is. Christianity is more like this. We are so stupid and dull, God is revealing himself, happy to reveal himself to man, saying, I am a God of love, merciful, compassionate. Everybody look at me. And then when someone does look at him and see, he's like, yes, you finally get it. I'm a God of love, and I'm a God of grace, and you finally get it. And I'm happy that you did, and I was trying to show you that all along. So it's not God's reluctance. It's our own reluctance, our own stupidity, our own philosophies that really keep us from knowing who God is. So God is pleased. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is happy that you know him? That it's, you know, there are people in our lives that we aren't so happy they know us, right? <laughs> You know, like, I wish that I didn't know this person, right? <laughs> or I wish they didn't know my phone number. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's not the way it is with God. Like, when you pray to God, he's like, why did I give him my phone number? You know? <laughs> why did I tell them that they could pray in Jesus' name? <laughs> That's not how God is. Do you believe that God is pleased to reveal himself to you? You, not man general, but you, Susan. God is pleased to reveal himself to you. Peter, JP, God is pleased to reveal himself to you. And he wants you to know him. And he wants you to pray to him, no matter how obnoxious you are. He doesn't grow tired of you. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, summing up the last three, uh, of the last four verses that we just read last week. 
And notice this word fullness. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. We're talking here about the man Christ Jesus, the incarnate Son. Notice um, in chapter 2, verse 9, it says, For in him, Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So we're talking about the revelation of God in Jesus the man. And notice the word fullness. Everything about God dwells in Jesus. Now, if everything about God dwells in Jesus, do you need to go outside of Jesus or look beyond Jesus to find out about God? No. Right? If we said all the full, um, the full number of books in Cache Valley are right here in Oasis Books, do you need to go anywhere else from Oasis Books to find the books? If all the fullness of the books dwells right here in, Cash, in Oasis Books, in the bookstore, do you need to go over to uh, the book table? No. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> this is a plug for Oasis, by the way. <laughs> uh, no, because all the fullness of the books would be right here at Oasis Books, and you wouldn't need to go anywhere else but to Oasis to find what you're looking for. And so it is with Jesus. All the fullness of God dwells in him bodily. You don't need to go anywhere else besides Jesus to know God. Jesus Christ is sufficient for you to know the Father. And you don't need to go anywhere else. Isn't that wonderful? That God has given us in his Son all the fullness of who he is. You don't need anyone else. You don't need, they might say, oh yeah, we believe in Jesus, that he's the Messiah and the Son of God. You also need this special temple, and you also need this special pilgrimage, and you also need this special thing for you to get the full, full experience of who God is. No. No, no. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, and you don't need anything else or anyone else but him. And anyone who would tell you that is lying to you and turning you away from God, not to God. So here's the first thing that is revealed to us, that all we need is in Jesus to know God. All we need is in him, and that pleases the Father. It pleases the Father for you to know him through his Son. Let's look at the next thing. Now the next thing is taken up in verse 20 to 22. I'm going to read that again. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight." Now, I want you to see that the whole idea of God's pleasure is carried over into this passage because of the word and at the beginning of verse 20. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and it pleased the Father. It pleased the Father that by him we would be reconciled to God. It pleased the Father that by him we would be reconciled to God. So this shows us God's pleasure first in his Son and then by what his son does. This is a thing that pleases the father. The King James is a little confusing, actually, in its order in verse 20. If you have a New American Standard, if you have an NIV, if you have an ESV, 
Usually the modern translations put it a little bit more clearly. <coughs> Here's the revised standard. It pleased the Father that all the fullness should dwell in him and that through him to reconcile all things unto himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether they be things on earth or things in heaven. Notice he repeats through him twice or by him twice. He, reads, he says, I say through him, through him you're reconciled. Like he says it twice for emphasis. Basically saying, you don't need anyone else to reconcile. It's through Jesus and through Jesus Christ alone that you are reconciled to the Father. The sufficiency of Christ, not just to know God, but also to have peace with God and to be reconciled to God. Do you believe that all you need for peace with God and reconciliation is met in Jesus completely, 100%? Or is it, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I think I need baptism, and I think I need commandments, and I think that I need all these other institutions and things besides Jesus to reconcile me and make me right with God? Or is it simply through him, in the body of his flesh, through death, he has reconciled me. Done. Which is it? Notice it says in verse 20, having made peace, past tense. There's so many amazing truths here in this little three-verse section I'd like to point out. Having made peace. God is not in the process of making the peace he has made the peace through the blood of the cross. Something has been accomplished. God isn't making peace through Jesus, but when he died on the cross, he made peace. He made the reconciliation a possible and accomplished it once and for all, as Hebrews tells us. And when we believe on Jesus Christ, we are simply receiving something that's been done. It's all finished, Jesus says. And we just receive what has been finished. The message is this. The message of the gospel is this. God is forgiving towards you, and he has, reconciled to, he has reconciliation towards you in his heart. And so when you believe on Jesus, when you accept that gift, you're not making God forgiving. You're not making God reconciling. You're not changing God's disposition towards you at all. Do you, do you know that, do you believe that? That when you believe on Jesus, you're not changing God's attitude towards you in any way because he's already forgiving towards you and extending that forgiveness because he's already accomplished the reconciliation. You're just simply receiving that by faith. doesn't change God's disposition at all. It's only for us to receive what's been accomplished. Why do we need reconciliation? Because here it mentions reconciliation. Why do we need it? Because verse 21, look at that, and apply this to you. And you, you, this isn't somebody out there. You, who were sometimes alienated, here's the, here's the reason why you need reconciliation. Because you were alienated, that means you were apart from God, and you were in your apartness enemies to God. You're alienated from him, and you were enemies to God. And therefore, you needed reconciliation. Reconciliation is the bringing back 
interrelationship between two parties, those who are alienated from one another and coming back together again. Notice it says your enemies in your mind. Enemies in your mind. What this tells us is that our before we become Christians, this is true for every person, before we become Christians, our problem isn't ignorance. It's in your mind that you're an enemy to God. And there's some people that like to say, well, everyone's just kind of ignorant. If they just were educated, if they just had more light, then they'd see you know, that they really do love God. But the problem is, he's saying here, that the problem isn't that you're ignorant. The problem is you're not ignorant. In your mind, you're an enemy to God. Or some people will say, well, we're sinners in our lower nature, you know, our baser appetites. We're, we're enemies to God in our baser appetites. But really, you know, the inner essence, I really do love God in my mind, in my heart. It's just my baser appetites that I'm an enemy to God. And Paul says, no, no. He elevates where your, your enmity lies. Your enmity against God as a sinner does not lie in some lower nature. It lies in that which sets you apart from the animals. Do you realize your mind sets you apart from the animals? And it's in that place where the enmity against God exists. So it's not just your animal appetites that God's ticked off with or that you don't flow with God's will. It's in that which sets you apart, your higher nature, if you will. That is where the enmity lies. Men hate God, Romans 1. They know him, they reject him, and therefore they're filled with wicked works. Wicked works being the expression of a mind that is at enmity with God. So it's a pretty dire um, picture here that God paints. Don't fool yourself. If you are not a Christian, don't fool yourself to think that you love God. Don't fool yourself to think that, yeah, I sin, but God really knows my heart and my mind. He does. I talk to students all the time on campus. Oh, God knows my heart. I know I break his commandments every day, but God knows my heart. And I say, it's true God knows your heart. And he knows that you don't love him in your heart and in your mind. And that's why you sin. And so you're alienated enemies from him. And therefore, there needs to be reconciliation. And how is that reconciliation wrought? How is that reconciliation brought about? Notice it says through death. There has to be death. There has to be death because you cannot oppose God and get away with it without blood shed. You know, some people think, oh, if I just pray and do a little repentance, everything will be okay. No, there has to be death because you don't oppose God and get away with it, with your hide. You don't do it. And so it's only through death that reconciliation comes about. The wages of sin is death, and somebody has to pay. And it will be either you or it will be Jesus. And the glorious good news, like we sang about today, is that the Son of God, in obedience to the Father's will, it pleased God, it pleased God, it pleased God to reconcile his enemies unto himself through the death of his son. 
And it tells us here a beautiful expression. He made peace with God through the blood of his cross. That's where your peace comes with. So let's say you, you realize, you come to a revelation one day, hey, I am an enemy. I am alienated. I need reconciliation. You know where to go to get that. You go to Jesus, who made peace through the blood of his cross. There is no peace outside of this. There is no peace for the Jew who doesn't believe in Jesus, for the Muslim who doesn't believe in Jesus. There's no peace with God, no matter how much they seek to make themselves right with God, even if they acknowledge their sins. Outside of the blood of his cross, there's no peace. Because only there is peace. And it says in this, the blood of his cross, the blood speaks of the sacrifice of the death of Jesus, that his death on the cross was a sacrifice. He gave himself for us in our place as a sacrifice and shed his blood. And the sacrificial blood being shed on our behalf is what makes us right with God. The cross speaks of him being made a curse for us on the cross. The Bible says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, and that Christ was crucified on the tree and became a curse for us that we could be released from the curse. It's at the cross where we have peace with God. It's not in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's at the cross. And on the cross, he hung there in our place and bore the curse for us that we deserve, that death that we deserve, he died. So we could have peace with God. And notice in verse 21, at the very end, it says, even though you're, you were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, it doesn't say you stop sinning, you put off those wicked works, you change your mind, you stop being enemies, and therefore you stop being alienated. It says, yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. His death presents you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in the sight of God. His death does that. Isn't that amazing? If you are believing in Jesus and trusting in what he did for you on the cross, you are, according to this verse, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. That means no one can lay a charge against you before God. No one can lay any charge to you. And when God looks at you, he sees you as totally blameless in his sight. Right now, that's the word in the Greek in verse 21 at the end there. Yet now has he reconciled. It's the word nuni in the Greek. And it means just now at this very moment. It's much stronger than the word now in the Greek. There's another word in the Greek for just now. But this is the one that is just now at this very moment. Right now, you're holy and unblameable in his sight. Totally. Right now. It's a special word. Do you believe that? It's not this kind of general, yeah, now I'm righteous and holy and late. Right at this second, you're holy and unblameable in the sight. And why? I thought you were an enemy. I thought you are an enemy in mind through wicked works. What did you do? And the Christian responds, Jesus did for me. 
I've been reconciled to God through the death of his son, through the blood of his cross. Any other answer is not acceptable. What, could you answer it any other way? So if someone asks you, why are you holy and unblameable in his sight? And you didn't answer with the blood of the cross, it was because I stopped sinning. It just wouldn't happen. You can't say that. But through the blood of his cross, you can. And you should. No matter how shocking it is to tell people that. That's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? If we can't say the shocking thing that right now at this very moment, I'm totally pure in God's sight through the blood of his cross, then we don't really have a gospel to tell. And that's the beautiful thing about this passage is when you ask the question, why? It's because not of what we've done, but what he's done because it pleased the Father. And I just want to say this to you, that it pleases God that you are blameless in his sight through the death of his son. It's not something that we twist God's arm for. It's not something that he gives us with hesitation. It's actually because this was his pleasure that we are saved, forgiven, and justified and pure in his sight. And that is his pleasure. I just want you to think about that maybe the rest of this week or the rest of your life. You know, just think about it. If you ever get that sensation that you're forgiven, just know it's because it's God's good pleasure that you are. The sufficiency of Christ with peace with God. You don't need to go anywhere else to get this but Jesus. By him, by him. It's all in him. And you don't need anybody else or anything else but him for reconciliation with God. That's the emphasis here. The sufficiency of Christ for knowing God and the sufficiency of Christ for having peace with God. You don't even need to add yourself there. The last thing we'll look at is in verse 23. It says, If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Now, when we read the word if in the New Testament, sometimes we can read it with an English sort of understanding. Because the word if in English is very, um, it's a very strong word. It's very conditional. It's very doubtful even. If you continue in the faith, you get this. But in the Greek, the word is, in fact, conditional but it doesn't carry such a strong, doubtful connotation. It could rather be translated, and it is translated this way in more literal Bibles, seeing that you do continue in the faith, or inasmuch as you are continuing in the faith. I mean, it is conditional. A person has to continue in the faith and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. That's just what Paul's taking for granted. Some translations even put it that way. Assuming that you do continue in the faith or taking for granted that you are continuing. So yes, a person has to continue in the faith. But Paul's not being doubtful here. He's just saying, look, in so much as you continue in the faith, assuming that you do, then this is your true state. The Bible takes for granted everyone who's been born of God will continue in the faith. But if a person doesn't continue in the faith, then they can't claim these things that we just spoke about, about being holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. You can't claim those things for yourself. 
So assuming that you do. But I think we miss the point of this verse, by the way. When we, because the, we're, we're English and the word if kind of draws us like a magnet, you know. If, that's the only thing we see. And then it, we take our eyes off Jesus and put it back on ourselves. But that's not Paul's intention. Let me suggest that the emphasis in this verse is on the word hope. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Be not moved away. That means you don't need any other hope. Don't go looking for hope anywhere else. There's one hope. And what is that hope? Christ. As he says a few verses down, that hope is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Don't move away from that. Don't think that you need to move away from that. Don't graduate from that. Don't think you need to add to that. Don't move away. So this verse tells us of the sufficiency of Christ to give us hope. You don't need to go anywhere else besides Jesus for hope. The hope of the gospel. And in the Colossians case, there were people that were pulling them away from that hope and saying, it's great that you believe in Jesus and all, but you don't have hope until you come over here and do these sort of things. Be not moved away. The mark of a true Christian is that he doesn't move away from that hope. Why are you going to heaven? Jesus. What are you going to answer tomorrow? What are you going to answer in 10 years? 30 years after you've been thoroughly sanctified? You know, and you can say, what's your hope now? Oh, my hope is it was Jesus when I first got saved, but uh, now it's... Um, all sorts of other things. Don't be moved away from that hope. There is no hope outside of Jesus. This is what it means to be grounded and settled in the hope. Those two things go together. Being grounded speaks of laying a foundation and being rooted in that foundation so that you are settled. A foundation that gives you the basis to withstand all storms. And being settled or unmoved is the result of being grounded. If you're grounded, you'll be settled. If you're grounded, you'll be unmoved in him. If you're grounded in a conviction of the hope of the gospel, then you won't be moved when a suggestion comes along for other things. So we as Christians need to be grounded in this hope. We're grounded in a conviction. I have a conviction based upon scripture that my only hope is in Jesus Christ and what he did for me on the cross. And I'm getting more and more convinced of that every day. As I read the scriptures, I'm seeing it's all over there. And I'm grounded. So when someone comes along and says, oh, no, let me give you a new suggestion. You say, no, I'm not going to be moved by that. I'm grounded in a conviction. So here's our challenge as Christians. Let's root and ground ourselves in the gospel of our hope so that we won't be moved because this implies that we're going to be tested, right? We're going to be challenged to move. I don't know about you, but I feel like every day I'm challenged to move. Every day there's a, a gust of wind blowing at me. You know, Satan's always blowing at me saying, move away from the hope of the gospel. Move away from the hope of the gospel. God wants us to be unmoved, settled, 
and grounded. The second part of this verse, he says, you've heard it already. We've already shared with you the gospel and it was preached to every creature which is under heaven. The hope that you heard is the hope for the whole world as well. There's one hope for you and there's one hope for the African and there's one hope for the Australian and there's one hope for the Asian, etc. There's no other hope. So don't be moved away from that because you won't find another one anywhere else in the world. And I like how Paul adds, I am made a minister of this. This is what, this is the ministry of Paul. This is the Pauline gospel, you could say, which he always says, you know, if he sometimes called it my gospel. But this was the ministry of Paul, traveling around, telling people about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for knowing God, for having peace with God, and for having hope. That was what Paul was all about. That was the gospel. And encouraging people to be grounded and unmoved in that. So, are you pleased with Jesus as the Father is pleased with Jesus to make himself known to you? Are you pleased that God has made himself known to you in Jesus? Are you pleased that you don't need to go anywhere else besides Christ for knowing God? You don't need to go anywhere else to have peace with God. You don't need to go anywhere else to have hope with God. Are you pleased with that? And when we see Jesus, we see the Father's pleasure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for providing for us Jesus Christ and for being pleased to do that and we're not twisting your arm. Thank you, God. Thank you for giving us hope and peace and the true knowledge of you in one place. And I do pray for all of us here, for all the saints, God, in Cache Valley and all around the world, that you would cause us to be grounded in this, let our roots go down deep in this, that you would establish us in this gospel, that we wouldn't be moved or unsettled by any suggestion from the devil, that we would need anything else besides Jesus Christ. Give us such a conviction, God, that we would be unmoved and that we'd be able to share with other people the hope and the peace and the knowledge that we have through him. I pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory, God. Amen.